Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. After the explosions that cut off three Russian gas pipelines to Europe, a Royal Navy warship is sent to the North Sea and a rapid order announced for new specialist survey vessels. Our internet and energy are highly reliant on pipelines and cables. Russia makes no secrets of its ability to target such infrastructure. Our intent is to protect them. We'll assess how much protection two more ships can offer, and Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark will help us understand just what's at stake here. Also, does the West have a response plan if Russia were to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Amid signs, President Putin is now trying to demonstrate he's not bluffing. It is incredibly risky. It's really easy to misinterpret certain things, as we've seen with the rumours around this convoy, whether it's carrying nuclear weapons or not. And we have the story behind a new national military monument. People from the Caribbean has been serving this country for over 400 years. And to have nothing to represent that energy and effort, how can this be? As conventional ground war continues in Ukraine, seven months of it now, has Russia also carried out a so-called grey zone attack on Europe? The US says it seems that way that Moscow is behind the undersea explosions which cut off the Nord Stream gas pipelines. Russia firmly denies it's to blame. Either way, it's happened, and the UK's upping its military readiness as a result. In the short term, a Royal Navy ship sent to the North Sea to help patrol energy pipelines. Longer term, it is to get two new specialist ships to also protect critical undersea data cables. One of the multi-role ocean survey ships will be bought on the open market and converted to be operational by the end of next year. The other will be specially built with extra capabilities. Uh, Michael Clark, the, the UK doesn't generally buy ships in a hurry like this, does it? The, the significance of protecting energy pipelines is pretty obvious, I guess. But how critical are the cables? Yes, it's uh, recognised now for some years that internet cables are a source of potential vulnerability, though we shouldn't overstate it. When um, Stuart Peach was the uh, chief of the defence staff, he explicitly mentioned, this is five or six years ago now, the need to think about undersea cables as a critical vulnerability that we ought to address. Not enough has been done about it, but now I think that is changing. We should be aware as well that that, um, uh, undersea cables, internet cables, they are vulnerable. In fact, there's about a dozen have been cut in the last 40 odd years by shark attacks. Mm. Um, So (laughs) they are vulnerable, but they're easily replaceable. They're not the same as gas or oil pipelines, which you've cut the pipeline, there's no other pipeline available. Internet cables are in profusion. So there's all, all sorts of other ways around. But that's not to say that they can't be cut or interfered with or tapped into. And that's something that the government is trying to take a lot more seriously now. So how much protection will two ships be able to offer those critical undersea cables and how will they do it? Dr Siddharth Korshal is Research Fellow for Sea Power at the defence think tank RUSI. The challenge posed to these cables by state-based threats primarily is not impossible to mitigate, uh, especially in a conflict scenario where permissions to actually control the access of uh, hostile assets to European waters is far, are far clearer. Uh, in peacetime, however, there's a greater challenge both of persistent presence, actually tracking the assets that can tamper with these cables, 
but also the question of how you can respond if you do suspect a foreign vessel of tampering with cables. There is some precedent for direct interdiction. You know, the Americans uh, seized the Soviet trawler back in 1959 because they thought it was tampering with cables. But generally, international law would suggest that that sort of activity might be more difficult in peacetime. So there it might be more a case of verifying responsibility to, to set the grounds for other consequences. And what capabilities would these ships have to have to actually do that job of protecting the undersea cables? That does depend because right now the specific capability suites the ships have uh, is, is still an open consideration. I mean, one area where there's a substantial opportunity is the use of unmanned underwater vehicles uh, to monitor activity around uh, undersea cables. So perhaps the capacity to host UUVs might be something that we would expect, as well as things like a fairly capable sensor suite to detect the activity of particularly of subsurface threats to cables, you know, things like the the special purpose uh, Russian submarine, the Belgorod, for example. Some of the cables are relatively short, 80 miles to Belgium or Ireland, but others run 4,000 miles across the Atlantic, two miles under the surface. Can one or two ships really make a difference there? There's a quite a lot of area to protect. I suppose the advantage would be, since the primary threat vector is Russia, that most Russian submarines, they, they still have to run the gamut of the two choke points that traditionally kept them in, the Svalbard, Norway, and Greenland, Iceland, UK gaps. So it's probably at those points that an object of interest would be picked up and then subsequently tracked. So I don't think uh, one or two ships would by itself uh, solve the problem. It would certainly be you know, part of a wider Western uh, response to this challenge. But but equally, the size of the theatre doesn't mean it's impossible to track those threats. You mentioned earlier the assets that can tamper with these cables. What are we talking about exactly? So, for example, the uh, Russian main directorate of deep sea research, a sort of undersea intelligence agency that answers directly to their MOD, uh, has uh, received control of uh, the Belgorod, a uh, modified Oscar-class submarine that was enlarged so that it could hold a number of deep diving assets, uh, one of which is uh, the Losharik, a titanium-hulled mini-submarine that is uh, built to dive to extreme depths and potentially sever undersea cables. It can also hold a number of smaller unmanned assets. So that's the sort of capability you're looking at, sort of large submarines, sort of motherships acting as bases of operations for smaller deep diving assets to actually tamper with the cables. And is the risk sabotage or is there an unspoken fear that Russia might tap these cables to get access to UK data? Well, generally speaking, sabotage of an undersea cable is a lot easier than actually tampering with it. But, you know, it's not impossible. I mean, the Americans uh, did that to the Soviets during Operation Ivy Bells, but it's very difficult. And what kind of military protection do we have for these cables at the moment? Because it might seem like a job for submarines rather than surface ships. In principle, any anti-submarine warfare asset, whether it's a submarine or a, a frigate that's optimized for ASW, can track something like the Belgorod. I should also say that there is an element of surface threat as well. So the uh, Russians also have a number of special purpose ships like the Yanatar, 
which are also built uh, to map and potentially act as hosts for assets that can tamper with, you know, undersea cables. And, and this week, we've seen a British warship head to the North Sea uh, to help Norway protect undersea energy pipelines. Would the capabilities of these multi-role survey ships be better for that in future? Uh, potentially. I mean, it really does depend on what, what they end up uh, sort of being in terms of concrete capability. But, but you know, that, that could potentially be the case. Siddharth Korshal from Rusi. Uh, Michael Clark, just going back to the importance of these cables, they carry about 95% of the UK's data. Do we rely on them for military communications or is all that on far more secure separate systems? Well, in a way, it's both. It partly depends what one means by military communications, because the military do rely on, as it were, commercial and civil sources for a lot of what they do, which is sensitive and it's only encrypted in the way that you or I might encrypt material that's commercially sensitive. But when, if we're talking about battle management and really critical military communications, then they tend to rely more on satellites and there is a lot of redundancy built in. So the military has certainly given a lot of thought to the vulnerability of their key core communication systems. Um, the problem is we won't really know if they've thought about it well enough until it's tested. Next to talk that Russian nuclear weapons could be on the move towards Ukraine. This week, a military train seen heading through central Russia has been linked by some to Moscow's nuclear forces. We can't know what's actually on board, but many have taken it as a deliberate signal by President Putin that he is, in his words, not bluffing about nuclear weapons. NATO is also reported to have warned that Russia is planning to test a nuclear-capable torpedo drone called Poseidon. In the face of recent sabre-rattling, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace indicated concern rather than alarm at the onward fringe event of the Conservative Party conference. It is no secret that it's Soviet and now Russian doctrine that tactical nuclear weapons are in their doctrine. But while it is in the doctrine, uh, we think it is highly unlikely he will do it. But the former commander of US Central Command, General Kenneth McKenzie Jr., gave a much starker assessment to a forum held by Policy Exchange. I think nuclear war remains a very real tool for the Russians. They never gave up their fixation with nuclear weapons. We did after the end of the Cold War. They're prepared to use those weapons. And I think we're in a period of very dangerous escalation right now. We just need to realize that. So how concerned should we be that Russia might choose a nuclear option? And what are those options? Mariam Mesmer is a senior research fellow for the International Security Programme at Chatham House. Uh, Mariam, welcome. We heard Ben Wallace talk about tactical nuclear weapons. They're much smaller nuclear weapons, something the UK and US don't have. It reminds us, doesn't it, that Russia has a broader range of nuclear weapons at its disposal. Just give us a quick summary of what that range is particularly when we're talking about tactical nuclear weapons that might be used in a battlefield situation. The, the concern is essentially that uh, if, if Russia is not doing very well conventionally, they might then be tempted to use those tactical nuclear weapons. Of course, Russia has strategic nuclear weapons, really long-range nuclear weapons. Um, they're the kind of nuclear weapons that we think of when we think of the Cold War standoff. If you drop one on a city, for example, the city would be eradicated, essentially. Both of these types of nuclear weapons can be delivered by air. They could be delivered through land-launched missiles or delivered from submarines or ships. 
And if Russia used a tactical nuclear weapon within Ukraine, could the effect be contained within Ukraine? That's, of course, the big problem with nuclear weapons. It's really difficult to contain any effects. So depending on the direction of the wind, the fallout could be carried anywhere else in Ukraine or indeed also over the border into Russia. Russia would also have a really hard time ensuring that its own troops are safe from the fallout. And NATO is reportedly warning that the Kremlin might test its Poseidon drone torpedo, which has the capability of carrying a nuclear warhead, a weapon that's being described as being able to create a nuclear tsunami. It sounds terrifying. The Poseidon sounds absolutely terrifying. Um, it's part of a group of four new weapon systems that Russia has been teasing and displaying for the past uh, few years. However, what I would say on the Poseidon and on any of the other three weapon systems there is that they are really far from being operational. So what Russia is doing there is essentially using them as a psychological deterrent. So they are meant to be terrifying. Okay, and what about these reports of a train that could be carrying nuclear weapons towards Ukraine, if that's accurate? Can we have any idea of what type of weapons they would be? What do you make of all of this? Well, actually, I'm, I'm not convinced that it was accurate that this train was moving nuclear weapons. There were some analysts who looked at what the train cars looked like, and Russia uses special train cars, essentially, to move nuclear weapons. They're very distinctive looking, and none of these train cars were used. So it is much more likely that this was um, transport for for a different conventional type of capability. Apparently, there is a weapons manufacturer near where the convoy was seen. I can completely understand what, where those news came from, but at the same time, I think the evidence is quite thin that this was indeed a nuclear movement. So how real do you think the risk is of Russia using nuclear weapons? I think it's really useful for Russia to be able to make these nuclear threats, ensuring that NATO knows its place, in a sense, and to, to free up Russia to have the maximum room for movement. I think Russia would actually not really have any tactical benefits from using a nuclear weapon, in part because of what I said earlier about how hard the effects of nuclear weapons are to contain. And of course, Russia is very aware that if it were to use nuclear weapons, um, there would be retaliation from Western states. So for all of these reasons, I think that the threat of nuclear use is much more useful to the Kremlin than actually using nuclear weapons themselves. But of course, it is incredibly risky, the direction in which this has been going. And if the level of tension is so high, it's really easy to misinterpret certain things, as we've seen with the rumours around this convoy, whether it's carrying nuclear weapons or not. And uh, that's where a lot of the risk in these conflict situations comes from. Mariam Mesmer from Chatham House. Michael Clark, are you more with people like Marion and the Defence Secretary who think it's highly unlikely President Putin will use nuclear weapons or General McKenzie who says nuclear war is a very real tool for the Russians? The fact that the Russians are as it were, implying that nuclear weapons could come into the equation, they're trying to frighten everybody, that always means that you, we should take it seriously and it increases the, the danger that there'll be a miscalculation or that, uh, that a leader could just manoeuvre themselves into a position where they don't feel they've got any other options. But I think the likelihood is still very low because there are many ways in which this crisis is likely to escalate, because it will escalate, it is escalating. But most of those at the moment are geographical. It's moved to the Baltic Sea now. It may move to Moldova or the Western Balkans. The rhetoric has certainly escalated. The, the threat of super weapons that Marion was talking about. I and mean, I think I would agree with her that the threat is the important thing rather than the, the prospect of use. But we can never rule that out. 
And to westernise, President Putin is driven less by rationale and more by a nationalistic pride. That's the worry for many, that if he's cornered facing a conventional defeat, he would rather go nuclear and therefore taking him seriously at this point might actually help. Well, I think we should take seriously the possibility. We shouldn't take him too seriously because if he's irrational, then you really can't make any calculations on that basis. But I'm not, I don't think he is irrational. The point is that there'll be very little battlefield gain in using 30 nuclear weapons in Ukraine because it's a very big place. I mean, for instance, say the, the Russians wanted to eliminate the uh, Ukrainian forces in Lehman, say a brigade, say 5,000 troops, or the Ukrainian forces in Snehrovika, who are now pressing on towards Kherson. They would have to use a 10 kiloton airburst to guarantee to cover three or four kilometers and kill and injure five to 10,000 people. They would get not much battlefield gain from it and a huge, huge political price to pay. And Mike, Ben Wallace has suggested that the leaders of China and India may have made clear to President Putin the nuclear threshold cannot be crossed. Do you think that's likely? Could they hold him back? I think they could. We know that the Chinese in particular, the Indians too, but China in particular is very worried about this, that the thing may spin out of control. And I think it'd be very unlikely that Xi Jinping could tolerate the idea that the, the great taboo on using nuclear weapons, that that taboo is broken by his ally. We are in the realms of what if, maybe even if President Putin doesn't know for sure if he'd be prepared to use a nuclear weapon. But our leaders, military and political, need to be ready for that possibility. We know what would happen if Russia used a nuclear weapon against a NATO country. It's called mutually assured destruction. But how would the UK and its allies respond to a tactical nuclear weapon being used in Ukraine? We can talk now to Dr. Mernie Garson, Associate Professor in International Conflict Resolution and Security at UCL. Uh, Melanie, good to speak to you. Do the UK and NATO already have a doctrine on their nuclear strike outside NATO, a roadmap for how they would respond? Well, there's not necessarily one that's publicly available, but we know that they have been conducting the US and NATO war games drills tests. What we have is given the statements that have been made, slightly escalatory statements coming out of the US in particular, of consequences, of severe consequences, this increasing rhetoric. But all of us have been thinking sort of what are the range of actions that could be taken. What we do know for sure, that it cannot be let go. Yes, at some level of action, we know the limits of possible responses at the top end, all out nuclear war, at the bottom end, do nothing. What are the other options in the middle? The two main options that we're seeing are either that there is a massive retaliation with conventional weapons, striking right at the heart of Russian capabilities at sea on land. And that would be likely done by providing increased weaponry for Ukraine to do it, or that the US and the UK or other countries formally enter the war. Now, I think the balance of probability right now is the first option, and that's what we're hearing most about it would be providing Ukraine with that kind of strategic ability to be able to push back massively in retaliation rather than formally enter the war. But knowing that those risks are there, 
the question right now is whether we wait or actually always preparedness covers a lot of ground in mm. relation to um, how action is taken. So at the key, at the heart of it right now would be putting both Ukraine and the West in the position, in as prepared a position as possible that would actually act as a deterrent. And Melanie, one suggestion during the rounds is a massive cyber attack on Russia. Now that would need to provide strategic effect, not just punishment. How much strategic impact could a Western cyber response have? Again, with this is often talked about whether there can be a massive cyber attack on the command and control structures. It's, again, from an outside perspective, there's we don't know what's in place, how long it's been placed, and the whether uh, it is indeed viable. We also know that the extent uh, that the cyber pipeline is a potentially leaky pipeline where that can also blow back to have negative consequences. And it's cyber still is not as easy, as targeted, as guaranteed as any kind of kinetic attack. Were it to come to the worst, what do you think the West's most likely response would be to the use of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine? I believe that having empowered uh, Ukraine properly, everything from having provided them with all the equipment to be able to operate within the nuclear circumstances from the radiation suits to the pills would be to sanction that kind of provision of power to Ukraine to really push back. Also, diplomatically, a lot should be going on now, particularly with China and India, to try and pressure them, to pressure Russia not to take this step. But there's a lot of questions because there's questions saying anything short of the US retaliating in like would be seen as weakness. But the option of escalating into that kind of nuclear spiral is unthinkable. So the best option will be that massive pushback to Russia from Ukraine. Dr. Melanie Garson, good to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Michael Clark, uh, let's take a step back in that nightmare scenario. If we, the West, genuinely believed Russia was going to use a tactical battlefield nuclear weapon in Ukraine, what would we do? Might, might we launch some kind of preemptive action or is that unthinkable? Uh, no, it's not unthinkable because it's what we believe uh, the United States and some NATO members have privately communicated to their Russian counterparts. Remember that the, the United States has been running this Tiger team the, in the National Security Council since the opening of the war. And the Tiger team is a team of planners to look at every eventuality they can think of. And of course, the nuclear eventuality has been on their agenda from the very beginning. And their job is to come up with a range of options to give to the president, literally on a day by day basis. They meet continuously all the time. And it is widely believed that one option would be to say, if we see the preparations being made, and they're quite long-winded preparations for theatre nuclear weapons to be used, if we see those preparations being made, we will attack them. That's one option. Or we will warn you that we will attack. I think the thing we can be sure about, I think as Melanie indicated, is that Western powers will not be passive. They'll not just sit back and condemn it. If there is the danger of nuclear use or, God forbid, nuclear use, there will be a, a very physical, powerful reaction of some sort 
by the United States and the Allies. Michael, stay with us. Now, it's Black History Month, and on the website, there are many stories celebrating the service of black people currently in the UK's armed forces. But there's also a reminder that the service of some over hundreds of years has had limited recognition. While there are British monuments to soldiers, sailors and airmen from many parts of the Commonwealth, there is no such monument for those from the Caribbean who serve the UK. But work has finally begun to create one at the National Memorial. Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire. Claire Sadler was there to talk to those behind the project. People from the Caribbean has been coming to this country or serving this country for over 400 years. And when I look at what they've accomplished and the amount of effort and energy they've put in and to have nothing to represent that energy and effort, it's sort of said to me, well, how can this be? Winston White is one of the founders of the National Caribbean Monument Charity. It was set up in 2019 to raise funds for a focal point for remembrance here at the National Memorial Arboretum. Three years later, we are here at the NMA for a groundbreaking ceremony to mark the spot where the monument will eventually stand. Pauline Milnes is an army veteran and is also involved in the National Caribbean Monument Charity. I came to the National Memorial Arboretum in 2015 and one of the things I wanted to see was a monument representing the Caribbean. You've got monuments from European allies, uh, all the other Commonwealth allies, but there was nothing there for the Caribbean. So that's why it's important. And also, it's not just a monument to come and look at, it's a legacy um, for, from the past, for the future and uh, the present. Sculptor Martin Jennings is the man responsible for the design. What I've done is to design what I think is a dignified piece of work that commemorates the great heroism of all those men and women who over many centuries have come from the Caribbean to give their service to this country. So this isn't just a monument to those who've lost their lives, like many are, but it's a reflection of a contribution of all those who have served. It's therefore both a monument and a celebration. The contribution of people from the Caribbean to the British military goes back as far as the late 1790s. Many were bought as slaves to boost the numbers of the West Indian regiments in the British West Indies. And while their service has been distinguished over the centuries, it isn't well known. Here's Winston White and Pauline Milnes. No, we do not hear about the contribution because, uh, as it's been said in history, if you want to write your if you want your history to be told, you have to write it yourself. And now, in the last couple of years, that's what we're doing. We're trying to put our history on the front page. In my time, we didn't know the contribution. I didn't know. I was a military person. And I didn't know the contribution that the people from the Caribbean had made. Now they are more aware of it. Um, but better late than never, I say. For now, the fundraising efforts continue as the charity is still some way from its £500,000 target. But all being well, the National Caribbean Monument will be in place by the end of 2023. 
Claire Sadler at the National Memorial Arboretum. Uh, Mike, when you look at the Caribbean legacy in the British forces stretching back to the Napoleonic Wars, it makes you wonder where Britain would be today without that and the many other contributions from around the world. Yes, indeed. I mean, you know, I mean, the slave trade was abolished by Britain in 1807 in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. And of course, it was the good old Royal Navy, because it was the most powerful navy in the world, that enforced that abolition it had a big effect. And so although Britain is guilty in many ways of establishing or helping to establish the, the slave trade, it was also the one power that did more than any other power to abolish it and to enforce that abolition, although slavery itself wasn't abolished as an act until 1833. But in that time, a lot of freed slaves served in the British Navy. Drake, indeed, uh, when he freed Spanish slaves, uh, took many of them on who wanted to crew for him because that was a future for them and a possibility of wealth and prize money. So um, Caribbean peoples have, have been in the British Armed Forces for many years. And during the Second World War, a lot of um, Caribbean nationals joined the Air Force. They're somewhere in the Army and the Navy. But the Air Force was very attractive to a number of these young men. And the, the stories of some of those pilots and navigators and air gunners in Bomber Command, one or two in Fighter Command, but mainly in Bomber Command, are very poignant, very interesting. And I always look, when I look at the, the obituaries of these people, because none of them now survive, I always look at the at the end of the obituary that says, after the war, they did this. They settled in mm. you know, Dudley or Smethwick or whatever. <laughs> and they, yeah. they married and they did this and they did that. And in a few lines, it tries to encapsulate the next 50 years of their lives. But their lives were defined, like so many others, by fighting in the war against the powers of fascism. Very important. Mm. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. That's all for now. We're back with another BFBS sit rep next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Mm.